All right, so take your outline. Uh, you won't need that for, it'll be a few minutes before we get there. But let's just pick up reading chapter two, verse 19, and we'll discuss it as we walk down the text. The word of God says that now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, we don't know, and, and there's no one really knows why there's a second time that the girls are gathered. We don't know the purpose for this, but when they were gathered for a second time, we know that Mordecai was in a place at the king's gate and he's sitting there. Mordecai, we met last week, and he, of course, raised Esther, who is now queen, and he, we know, is a Jew. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's descended from Achish, and, uh, and he is now at this point in the story, probably because of the work of Queen Esther, he is sitting at the king's gate, which we should interpret to mean that he has a role in the government, he has some form of government position. And some believe it's high ranking. Some believe it's kind of like Dwight was on the office, you know, an assistant to the regional manager kind of job. You know, like, I, I don't know, but he has a job in the government and he is there at the King's Gate. <clears throat> We're told that Esther, verse 20, had not made known her kindred, or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Next week, we'll talk about Esther specifically as a person and the decisions that she's made and the decisions that she will later make in the story. We'll look at that next week. But for right now, we know that Esther has not made known that she's a Jew. She doesn't evidently look like a Jew in her style. She doesn't eat like a Jew according to God's word. She seems to have sat aside her Jewishness and the law of God so that she can look very Persian. She won the job as queen and she seems to be fitting right in. She more than likely has gotten Mordecai the job, but nobody knows of their relation. So that's why that is there in our story. Picking back up at the gate in verse 21, it says, in those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, more than likely doing work with the government, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance or the threshold, they became angry and they sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. Now, we don't know why they were mad. We just know that these are two men who were in service of the king, they were servants. And what we're told, Herodotus is a historian that we get a ton of information from during this time period. And what he lets us know is that during the reign of King Xerxes, that there were roughly 500 men a year who were castrated and brought into the service of the king, made to be eunuchs. And given that he's bringing a thousand women into the harem, that might suggest why. But these are two men, eunuchs. We have no idea why they're upset. We don't know if they're upset at a policy of the king. We don't know if they're upset because he just led, a, uh, he led the army to Greece and lost, probably lost a ton of possessions for the kingdom. We don't know if they're mad because he made them eunuchs. We have no idea. 
We don't get to hear their conversation. In fact, we don't even know how Mordecai gets the information that they're angry and wanna kill the king. We just know that Mordecai, that he finds out, and we would typically think that he overheard a conversation. These kind of assassination attempts were a regular thing in the Persian empire. In fact, Xerxes in 465, he will be murdered by one of his servants in his bedroom. He'll be assassinated by somebody close to him. So you can't trust anybody in that kingdom. Verse 22 picks up and says, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. So he hears that they wanna kill the king. And he told it to Queen Esther and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. Verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And so they do a little research into this accusation that there's two men that want to kill the king. They find it to be true. And the king has these men, these men killed. I will point out this bit of information if you want to take some notes here, that when it says both, that they were both hanged on the gallows, the word can actually be translated on a pole. So it could be that they were impelled on poles or it could be translated on a tree. And so it could be that they were hanged on a tree. The Persians were actually the first people in history to practice, they actually invented crucifixion, though the Romans uh, perfected it. And so it could be that these two men were hung on a cross or on a tree. But it was a public display so that people would go, so they could say, you know, you don't want to be like those guys. Don't try to kill me or I'll do that to you. And so that's what takes place there. We're told in the very last verse of this section, it says, and it was recorded, this event, in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. I want you to make a little asterisk there next to that. You can underline it. You can make a note. You can draw a smiley face. You can be like, this is gonna be important later, okay? Hint, hint. Moving forward to chapter three, we are expecting at this point, because it would have been very normal in the Persian empire for if you did something great, if you were faithful to the king, guess what the king would do? He would reward you. And so we're expecting this next section to be about Mordecai being rewarded. Well, that's not exactly what happens. Look at chapter three, verse one, after these things, and if make another note, these things in this set of time is actually about five years, five years. Time moves fast in the book of Esther. After five years, King Xerxes promoted Haman. We don't even know who this guy is. Not, not Mordecai, but he promotes another person, Haman, the, and we're going to say this together in just a second, Agagite. Okay. So now it's your turn. All right. On the count of three, everybody's going to say like, you got gravel in your teeth. Okay. You ready? We're going to say Agagite. Haman, the Agagite. Okay. I didn't count to three. So you did it anyway. Good job. Good job. This is a guy, he just sounds nasty. Okay. He just sounds like he's going to be a villain. And he is. Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. How you love that? That's a good name, isn't it? Practiced several times before I said it. Not sure if that's how you actually say it, but you don't know either. So 
move on and he was advanced or King Xerxes advanced him and set his throne. Haman's given a throne above all the officials who were with him. So we're expecting Mordecai to be lifted up and we're supposed to think that as we read it, but instead Haman, the Agagite, he is given a throne, a little throne, a mini throne, but he's given a throne and a place of power. This is going to be our villain. Meet him, his name's Haman. Starting in verse two, picking up again. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, they bowed down and paid homage to Haman. Look at the next phrase. For the king had so commanded concerning him. Now, this is a culture that you would bow or you would recognize anybody that was in a position above you at any point. It would be like the most natural thing to do. Even people who weren't above you as far as uh, in society, you would bow. That's how people would greet one another. That's how they would, uh, that's just how life was. It's like the most natural thing to bow, to honor. Yet the king has to create or has to command people to bow to Haman. So I'm going to suggest that we have an interesting society where you've got a few people and in this situation, men who believe that when people don't do what they want them to do, they just think they can command them so, and that it ought to happen. So Vashti doesn't come and so a group of dudes get together and they say, well, I know what we need to do. Let's make a law where the wives have to honor their husbands or they're out of here. We command you, honor them. Whatever they say, you do. That doesn't create a very sweet culture. Well, in this situation, if this guy's so bad that there has to be a command to honor him and he has a throne, we can probably see in this something suggested in the text that Haman's just not a good guy. He's not somebody that people enjoy being around and he's not very respect worthy. Well, pick up there uh, in into verse two, verse, and starting in verse three. But Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's word would stand for he told them he was a Jew. So, you know, he is in a position where he's seeing these servants of the king. So like around the government office, they're saying, hey, what's up with you not bowing to Haman? It's, it's a command of the king. Why will you not bow? And they say this day after day. And finally, they're like, we're going to tell him. Like, we're going to report to Haman that you won't bow. And we're going to see if you'll continue to do this very thing. And so they go and tell him. And we don't know what all Mordecai had said. We don't know his exact attitude. We don't know if he's just being pigheaded here or, or if this is something that he says is honoring to the Lord that I will not bow to a person like you. Well, whatever it is, Haman finds out and guess what? He's not just a little mad. He is furious. 
Verse five says, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And so here we get our second main conflict. The first one was between Queen Vashti and King Xerxes. Our second main conflict is here between Mordecai, the Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, descended from Achish, and this man, Haman, the Agagite, the enemy, he will be called later, of the Jews. There, there's several things that this could mean, and I will just point this out. The, the bowing down, it is possible because he had a throne that he believed himself to be a little deity. King Xerxes believed himself to be a big deity. In fact, he called himself the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So it's possible that Haman believed himself to be such and was commanding worship. We don't know that, but it's possible that's why he wouldn't bow down. But regardless, Mordecai's not bowing and Haman is absolutely out of his mind angry, ready not just to kill or punish Mordecai, but to destroy all of his people. This is genocide. This is what we see happen. Haman was like the earliest Hitler-like person that we see and we see him in God's word. This is not the first people to come against God's people or to want them destroyed. In fact, Haman is called an Agagite. And at this point in the story, we need to be reminded of something from biblical history. And we see it and we saw it in chapter two, though you might not have gotten it and I've repeated it a couple of times today, but it's when we read about Mordecai, our minds should be triggered to a event that took place prior. We're told that he was from the tribe of Benjamin and he was descended from a Kish. Another person that, that fits the description was King Saul. King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin descended from Achish, the king. He was commanded by the Lord to bring justice by wiping out the Amalekites. And the Amalekites leader was King Agag, where we get the name Agagites, okay? And so it's from here that we remember that Saul, though he was supposed to bring justice, and it's another subject for another day about how God brought justice there by killing a people. It's another conversation for another day. But Saul does not kill King Agag. And the Amalekites persevere. Well, today we have a conflict that is Mordecai, a Jew, and we have Haman, an Agagite. Doesn't have to mean that he came through the line. Uh, in fact, the, the Jews referred to the Romans as Agagites. So it could just be one that oppresses or come against you know, an enemy of the Jews, but he may have been down the line. Regardless, we see this conflict taking place. 
So what does he do? He wants to have all of the Jews killed. And so he develops a plan. And so we pick up and I'm gonna do a little bit of summarizing here. Starting in verse seven, we see him go and he cast lots. He rolls the dice. It's a normal custom of the time. And as he does this, the, the dice or, or the lots, they were called pours. Okay, in plural, it's Purim, which is a really big holiday that's described here in this book that we'll talk about later. So something's happening here. You probably know, but we're not gonna talk about it yet. But there are lots, there are dice that are being tossed. And what this was doing was saying, hey, uh, fate, or maybe the pagan gods of the Persian empire will give us the lucky day or the right day for this massacre or this genocide to take place. And so he throws the dice and it lands on a time 11 months in the future, okay? He walks away from that and we don't really need to discuss it anymore. He then goes to the king and he has his plan brought before him. And I wanna read it for you. Look at verse eight of chapter three. It says, then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people, and keep in mind, he doesn't say who they are. He doesn't call them Jews. He doesn't even, and the king doesn't ask. There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So he tells a half truth. He says, there's a people dispersed throughout your land that are different. That's true. Now keep in mind, Esther's not looking too different, uh, but the people evidently practice the customs of the people of God. And so they did look different. And he says, look, they're, they're practicing their weird customs and they don't obey your law. Now that, that's where we start getting some deception in here. But that's the story he gives and the king says nothing about it. He says, they're not to your advantage to keep them around. They're people that are less than, let's wipe them out. Verse nine, he says, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. That's a ton of money, by the way, that I will pay that into the hands of those who have charged, who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. What he's saying is, and we can insinuate, after we plunder all their stuff, I'll give you all this money. Haman's not interested in money. He's interested in destruction. He doesn't care about getting paid. He just wants to kill this people whom he hates. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring. He gave his signature. He gave power to Haman from his hand and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of 
Hamadatha, there it is. The enemy of the Jews and the king said to Haman, the money's given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. And what most people believe this is saying, he's going, I'm not worried about the money, but go do your thing. Go do it. Finishing up this section, keep reading with me. Verse 12, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman had commanded was written down and it was sent out. And so word is spreading throughout the kingdoms of what's gonna happen, that there's gonna be a massacre, that the Jews are gonna be destroyed. The town we find is in great confusion. And yet this chapter ends, look there at verse 15. It says that the word went out by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. There's an uproar in the city and yet Haman and the king they're just enjoying their drinks. Well, that's our scripture for today. I wanna remind you of something that we talked about last week and we're gonna practice it as we apply this word. Last week, we said that when we read the book of Esther, let's not look primarily for moral examples. Don't do it. Look more about why we do not do that next week, but don't look primarily for moral examples, but learn to look for the hand of God, the hidden hand of God. And we were reminded that though God's never mentioned in the book, it pointed to this, that though God may be silent, he's never absent. Though he might be silent, he's never absent. And we wanna learn to look for his hidden hand. And so today, as we apply this word, we want to practice doing that very thing. And so I wanna give you three hints. This is where you need to look at your outline. Three hints of God's hidden hand in our text. The first one is this, and we're gonna move fast. This is good, okay? The first one is we see the hidden seed of Mordecai. The hidden seed, you might say, of Mordecai's faithfulness. See, there in chapter two, verse 19 to 23, we see Mordecai and his faithfulness to the king, his loyalty to the king. These words are written down. What Mordecai did to save the king's life was written down. Then it was thrown into a library and we believed forever forgotten the hidden seed of faithfulness. And we might try to come up with morals. We might come up with a moral like this, that something like always do what's right, even when nobody's looking. Now that's not a terrible breakdown. In fact, that's a good principle to consider. But the writer here of Esther is pushing us to something far deeper than that. Much more God-centered than that. It goes something like this, that even when no one notices, even when 
God sees. That God knows and God works for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. That even when no one sees and no recognition is given, God sees and God knows. And so as that word is placed in a library and forgotten in the dark, I want to point you to a day that will come. We're going to foreshadow something in the book. In chapter six, the king one night is just going to happen to not be able to sleep and he's going to desire a bedtime story. And so he says, will you go get from the library the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, And it's brought to him. And as it's being read to him, he reads about Mordecai and that faithful deed. Well, I'll just say that Mordecai is gonna be brought and because of the Lord's work through that deed, he's gonna be placed in a position of power to save the people. It's pretty good, okay? So it's a hidden seed of faithfulness. That's our first hint Oh, God's at work. Mordecai just happens to be in a spot where he happens to hear a plot. The king just happens to wake up one night and need to hear a story. It happens to be the book recorded that had recorded his work. The hidden seed. I want you to see the second hint of God's hidden hand. It's the casting of lots. The casting of lots by Haman. Haman is casting the poor, casting lots, casting dice to see what day the genocide should take place. He believes the time is in the hands of fate or in the gods, lowercase g, of Persia. Yet as we read, we get this hint that maybe time is not in the hands of fate, that maybe it's not in the hands of the little false gods of Persia. Maybe it's in the hands of the God of the Jews. Maybe it's in the hand of the God of the Bible. We're reminded in Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. We Remember as the king and Haman sit down and drink their wine and they watch the destructive word go out in the kingdom to see what would take place and to watch the genocide. We remember Matthew 27, starting in verse 34. They offered him, Jesus, wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by what? By casting lots. They sat down and kept watch over him there. So as the wine is there, as the lots are cast and as the watch is taking place. It says, and over his head, they put in charge, the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Later in verse 42, the words coming out, he saved others. 
He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and he will believe and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. We remember the taunting toward Jesus, the king of kings, as lots are being cast and his ability to be delivered is being questioned. And we think about this as the word, the edict is going out into all the land that the Jews, God's people would be killed. Third hint, the day of the edict. The day of the edict. We're we're told that on the first month, the 13th day, the edict went out. And I don't know if that means anything to you, but it ought to. And it means this is the first month, 14th day is the celebration of the Passover, which is the celebration of God's unbelievable delivery of God's people from oppression. The great salvation of the Lord as he saved his people from the Egyptian rule. The day before the celebration would take place where they celebrated God's power to deliver, the word goes out into all the land that they will be killed. And the hint goes something like this. Will God not do it again? Can God not save his people here like he did there? It's three hints. The truth of the application today goes something like this, or truth of application, that God has designed and is actively working out our deliverance in Christ even before man or Satan or anything else devises our destruction. One more time. God has designed and is actively working out our deliverance even before man devises our destruction. Today, because of Christ's finished work on the cross, the greatest hidden seed of faithfulness, the one that died in darkness, buried in a tomb, hidden in the tomb, on the third day would rise from the grave victorious. The seed of faithfulness that would bloom and grow and be the way of salvation for all who will believe. The greatest act of deliverance, the Passover lamb, as he is crucified on the cross and resurrected in power. Because of the finished work of Christ, we have assurance from the Father that no matter what we're going through, no matter what circumstances we might be in, no matter how great the sorrow, no matter how deep the pain, no matter what, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Even when we don't get the raise we deserve, God is for me and he's with me. God loves me. Even when I get a call that I have terminal cancer, God is for me and with me and God loves me. 
Even when I'm struggling with anxiety and fear and depression, God is for me and with me and God loves me. Even when I feel hopeless, God is for me and with me and God loves me. Even if I have made choices that were against the Lord, that have hurt others and have brought consequences upon my life and my family, God is for me and with me and God loves me. How can I know this? The cross of Christ. The love of God seen in our greatest need being met. It was met when Jesus died in the place of sinners and he rose from the grave to deliver us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of light. Because he showed the greatest act of love and care on the cross, the Bible says that if he was so for me in this way, in his son, he will be for me in Christ in any circumstance I find myself in. Oh, the hope that we see from cover to cover from God's word. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it everywhere in God's word. Every story whispers his name, the name of Jesus. The only name that we may be saved. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness.